This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You can get it if you really want. You can get it if you really And you can get want. a lot of variety when it comes to ETFs. Uh, the ETF industry, I promised you some numbers. Listen to this. More than $4 trillion in the United States in terms of assets under management. Five point six or five two six trillion, I should say, globally, and there's about twenty two hundred ETF offerings out there. David Mazza knows about this. He's managing director and head of products uh, at Direction. He is here on site at uh, BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. Nice to have you here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a huge industry, and I used to marvel. It felt like every week we'd have some guests come on on Bloomberg Radio and just talk about the new offerings. Where are we in the ETF space in terms of the types of products being offered? offered and what it, it provides for investors. Yeah, it's really interesting. Even 10 years ago, it was sort of a small club. It was pretty niche yes. um, as part of the broader financial services industry. And there's always one or two providers, new offering every week. People were paying attention, but the numbers weren't really there. And fast forward to today, and it's all about the growth of the numbers and the growth of different types of users taking a product which really has democratized investing. Because what's great about an ETF, whether it's for the S&P 500, for emerging market bonds, for gold, everyone pays the same price. So whether you're buying one share or a million shares, you're all paying the same price. And of course, over the years, many ETFs have actually seen their expense ratios decrease over time. So when you can think about building portfolios or doing something unique in a rules-based way with certainty of what are your holdings, investors have flocked to that, especially in an environment of so much uncertainty. So with this sort of growth, I would imagine there are also complications, You know, not the least of which may be quality uh, across that uh, span. So how can people be discerning when it comes to this ever-expanding universe? Yeah, it's a great point. So when you have more arrows in your quiver, more tools in the toolkit, whatever analogy you want to use, it's great. But that means you have more choice, and that means the due diligence still needs to be there. So whether or not you're a retail investor, a financial advisor, an institution, there's some simple things an investor can look at to understand what might be there. So certainly focus on the cost, what the expense ratio is. Look at the liquidity, though, because ETFs trade in a stock exchange just like a, just like a stock. So you got to right. understand, is there liquidity for you to get in and out of that particular product? But also, at the end of the day, know what you own. The beauty of ETFs is whether or not it's actively managed or it's a passively managed product or something in between with the growth of factor investing in smart beta, you can go on a fund provider's website and every day see what the holdings are there. So not just, don't just read the headline of what's the name of the ETF, whether it's from direction or another firm. Go in, do a little due diligence, and you'll probably end up as a happier customer. Are we seeing more actively managed ETFs, which I kind of find funny because the whole idea initially was, yeah, you know, kind of set it, set got it, an index, it. and just go, right? Yeah. Correct. That was but we're, we're moving along with that. Yeah, so what's interesting is you go back to 1993 when the first ETF was listed um, in the U.S., it was all about passive management and right. just track an index, S&P 500 for years, and it was sectors. And create an index. Yeah, cre- and then, <laughs> and then, and then, and then the, ne- the next theme was, let's create a new index. Yeah, yeah. Let's slice and dice the market a bit more. And now it's been a big kind of 360 uh, around saying, well, actually, active management might make some sense. The challenge is the wrapper. 
right? Maybe the, maybe the ETF is actually a better way to access a particular strategy, especially because of the tax efficiency. That's one of the beauties of ETFs is they externalize cost, right? And a portfolio manager doesn't necessarily have to buy and sell the securities in the ETF. They're doing it through different mechanisms. And because of that tax efficiency, investors, in addition to the low cost, have really flocked to it. So now many active managers are coming in and looking at this structure mm-hmm. and saying, man, for years, I'm going to Heisman that. I want nothing to do with it. But now I'm actually embracing it and saying, my strategy could work pretty well there. And I actually might be able to grow my business, offer my um, solutions to a, a bigger stream of investors. So even with all these ETFs out there, it feels like there's still some open space. Where is that? Where's the white space where maybe we could see a little more population from an ETF perspective? Yeah. So certainly I think on the low cost side, just tracking indices, there's been a lot of growth there and mm-hmm. it's pretty saturated. On the other hand, um, there's a lot of opportunity still in active management. And who knows what those will look like? Do we see some of the major star managers launch ETFs in the space? Uh. Likely. Right. So we've sort of seen some of that, but more to come. Dave, is it a point that, you know, ultimately ETFs replace mutual funds? Are I we getting there? Because mutual funds aren't even that old. Well, that's it, it's interesting. They're not even 100 years old, yeah. technically. So certainly they're kind of, you know, they're in Social Security age, but they're not going anywhere. Yeah. Right. So, so why? I'm, well, if ETFs are so good, why? Are mutual funds not going anywhere? Well, ETFs are great. They continue to grow. They're still a really small port of the portion of the total capital markets, less than 5%. If you think about every offering, individual securities, collective funds that institutions use or mutual funds. The mutual fund might still be a good structure because the one benefit there is, let's say I, I, I don't need intraday access. I don't need to buy and sell a particular security. Right. With, with the, a mutual fund, I just get the end-of-day pricing. Yeah. And so if I'm doing it in a retirement account or something of that nature, operationally, it's quite easy. However, if I want to be more empowered in my portfolio, make, um, not necessarily making more frequent decisions on a daily basis, but just use access to things that are more thematic in nature mm-hmm. to complement what I might already be doing, that's when the ETF structure can be very powerful. It's great stuff. Really good to have you here with us. Dave Mazza is Managing Director, Head of Product at Direction, on site with us in Phoenix at BNY Mellon's Pershing Insight Conference. We're going to have much more from here. We're going to talk a little bit about big data. They call me the seeker. All right. Well, you know, you come out here to Phoenix and you run into some interesting New Yorkers. <laughs> Go figure. All right. Sam Shapiro is here with us. He's a portfolio manager back at Goldman Sachs Asset Management in New York. But he's here with us in Phoenix at the BNY Mellons, at BNY Mellons Pershing Insight Conference. He's part of a panel called Using Big Data to Seek Consistent Alpha in Inconsistent Markets. And if there is one thing we know, Carol Masser the markets are inconsistent. Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. All right. So take us inside. Give us a sense of what you guys were talking about on this panel, because we talk a lot about big data, but how are you actually putting it into practice? Well, you know, I think there are, um, for the most part, investors or general people just, um, we know the world of data is growing. And yet the magnitude of that growth is incredibly startling. Mm -hmm. And to the extent, you know, what we believe is that active management is really about information advantage. That's not a shocking statement. If you want to beat the market, you have to know something the market hasn't incorporated into prices. Um, And there are a lot of ways to do that. You can get on a plane, go to some far-flung factory, try and figure out something no one else knows. But if you look at the world today, the opportunity to know something that other people don't know we believe is actually right there at your fingertips if you have the technology, the resources, 
and the skill to translate data into information. It's something that we're seeing not just in investment management, but across every sector of the economy. And so what we do on our team is we try to pair traditional measures of what make a good company, balance sheet analysis, valuations. We try to pair those fundamentals with this growing world of big data to gain that information edge. So for example, um, we want to try and forecast sales for stocks. Rather than looking at same-store sales, Mm -hmm. which is a great way to try and forecast sales growth, but everyone has access to that data, everyone looks at it, and the market prices it in pretty efficiently. What we can do is we can look at 30,000 web pages every single day. We know, on average, how many unique visitors are going to those web pages. We know how many underlying page views they're going to. And we can use that to try and forecast sales growth. In many ways, it's very intuitive. And that's a key part of what we're doing. We're not trying to redefine what makes a good company. Okay. Very simple, though. What a great idea, right? It makes complete sense. But you find that out. You get an edge for half a second, (laughs) and somebody else figures it out. That's part of the challenge, right? Well, I think there are two barriers to entry that we benefit from. The first is, is just scale. Um, we're not in the first inning of this big data revolution, but we're not in the later innings either. I think we're in, you know, inning two, three, four. Yeah, I think it's early too. And so there is still a huge advantage to scale, uh, both from just a spend standpoint, so we can acquire data that others can't. Goldman Sachs, as a firm, spends uh, over a billion dollars in 2018 on technology and communications, and a portion of that includes data. Uh, acquisition. So there is a huge scale advantage that we have by being able to plug into that broader Goldman Sachs. The other advantage is uh, having the resources and the size to uh, build technology to translate data into information. Because we don't make decisions on data, we make decisions based on information. And you need technology to translate one to the other. We have a pretty big team. I think today, if you have one data scientist on your team, you may be able to create one signal, two signals, but how can you really leverage the full scope of it? It's that custom technology. So how do you figure out what the right signals are? Because you've got so much data that, available to you. As you said, the scale uh, is pretty enormous, especially for a player of your size. How do you, how, how do you sort of validate the signal and, and figure out the ones that are best? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think 15, 20 years ago, the role of a portfolio manager in many cases was to seek out information. I think today, in many ways, the role of all portfolio managers is to filter information. Yeah. Um, just think about how many e- emails we get every single day, and, and filtering becomes the key, yeah. not, not uh, opening them up. Um, you know, for us, it really starts with economic intuition. So again, we're not trying to redefine what makes a good company, but we're trying to figure out ways to measure which companies are good more comprehensively and more quickly. So it starts with economic intuition. We think, you know, sales growth is important. Is there a way we can get ahead of that? Okay. We're talking with Sam Shapiro, portfolio manager at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, participating in a panel here called Using Big Data to See Consistent Alpha in Inconsistent Markets. How does ESG play into all of this? Yeah, ESG is one of those things where I think for us, um, ideally, we'd love to incorporate ESG into our process. We subject ESG data to the same rigorous analysis that we apply to any data set. And so there are some ESG signals that we believe we can prove historically have uh, led to or helped us to distinguish outperforming country, companies from underperforming companies, mm-hmm. but not all do. Uh, and we're not going to give an edge to an ESG signal just because we, uh, we hope it works. I think, there, though, there is a subtle point about ESG signals, which is 
if we can find one that maybe works uh, even in a small amount historically, perhaps we want to include it in our model because it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that more investors begin to care about ESG, then that signal becomes material, even if it wasn't historically. Interesting. So there's some extent to which we want to be not just backward-looking, when we think about which signals to include, but also forward-looking. Right. And so how much do you incorporate AI in what you're trying to do? How much machine learning sort of figures in? I mean, you have a fascinating background. You've got a, a master's in computational finance. So I have to imagine you're always sort of reading ahead, you know, sort of reading around the corner to figure out that edge, because as Carol said, that edge can disappear so quickly. Look around the corner for us. Help us understand where you go. Yeah, I think, you know, when we think about AI or machine learning, um, you know, the key is where in the process do you employ it? Yeah, Because the more machine learning you get, there's a trade-off. More machine learning means less transparency. We don't necessarily know why we buy something. The more machine learning we would employ. And that's something where ultimately we begin to get uncomfortable with that. Right. So what we do is we employ machine learning to take raw data and turn it into a signal. But then when we think about which, how do we want to weight the signals, how do we want to come up with that total average score for every stock. That's where the human stock, comes in, right? That's where the human comes in. There's a qualitative component to that. But also, uh, for us, we want to use pretty simple math, uh, you know, a simple weighted average. It allows us to actually then see why we buy a stock, why we don't buy a stock. So where do we use machine learning? We use it in Just things about like... Just 30 seconds. Yeah, we use it in things like um, we'll take raw PDFs of mm-hmm. earnings call transcripts or analyst reports and design machine learning algos to read those reports and tell us which ones are good or bad. Wow. That's really, really interesting. Uh, we are so glad you spent some time with us. Uh, Sam Shapiro, Portfolio Manager at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, based in New York, but here with us at BNY Mellon's Pershing Insight Conference in toasty, warm Phoenix, Arizona. Come back. Yeah, come back and see us. I'd be glad so to be back in New York. relevant to what's going on. So the world is embarking on a great transfer of wealth from one generation to the next. And how the next generation wants to invest is, yeah, I think it's safe to say, Jason, different from its parents or their grandparents. Let's talk about that. Katie Swain is Director of High Net Worth Product Management at Pershing, joining us, of course, on-site at BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference. Nice to have you here. Carol, thank you so much, Jason. I'm thrilled to be here. We were just saying that I feel like we are having more and more conversations about family offices, high net worth individuals, managing that money. What's going on? You know, I, I, I really think it has a lot to do with just what's going on with the media. <laughs> I mean, we hear about all the billionaires being yeah. made overnight. We hear about, um, you know, the news that you just read about California and all the all the wealthy people in California. Right. It's, it's on people's minds. Um, people are really seeking advice. And um, the lives of the wealthy are much more complex than they used to be. And they're vocal about it. Yeah. And with, with um, you know, social media and everything else, you, you just hear about it and you want to know more about it. So, Well, and it feels like super wealthy folks are much less willing to do sort of, we were joking about this earlier, sort of a set it and forget it kind of mm-hmm program for what they want to do. They want to know where their money's going. They want it to mean something. They want to be more uh, actively involved. And they're looking at a much wider range of asset allocation in a lot of ways. I have to think that's changed your business pretty dramatically. Well, it has, but it's presented great opportunities for advisors. Um, and, and to your point, 
it's really about life planning. Yeah. It's not about the asset allocation. Lifestyle, oh, you know, right? Yeah, lifestyle. Can I meet my goals? Can I, you know be a philanthropist? Can I leave a legacy? And so uh, the conversations have really turned around a bit from where they were 20, 30 years ago. And uh, advisors are looking at, you know, upping their game and and expanding their practice to be much more uh, focused on advice and planning. So talk to us a little bit about that. And I am curious about the strategies that high net worth individuals, family offices, you know, want to be involved in and invested in because we've seen certainly a rise of the private markets versus public markets. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious about kind of asset classes and the types of investments that they want to explore. Are you seeing any kind of trends? uh, The trends we're seeing um, really are around uh, uh, broader services. So getting getting back to um, the, the types of interesting, uh, different sort of things that they're asking for. Not so much around asset classes and and investments, but they're looking more for things that are going to help them with a legacy. For instance, they may be looking at um, setting up estate plans and trusts. They may be looking at um, charitable giving. Donor advised funds are exploding in growth right now. But one of the key trends that we're seeing right now is around lending. You know, you don't Mm. think of wealthy people as really needing money, needing to borrow money. But in order to really leverage their wealth, and um, make an impact and, and, and take advantage of opportunities they might have in business or um, personally. Uh, lending has really been a key trend we've seen specifically around securities-based lending, non-purpose loans. Interesting. And so we're getting a lot of, um, a lot of interesting calls on that, and advisors are incorporating that into our practice. In fact, we just released a white paper, um, Win, Grow, Retain, and it's about liability management, smart liability management. So for instance, if... Um, there was an advisor um, a few weeks ago who had one of his clients call him, and they said, "Hey, um, you know, I'm on the coast. I see a beautiful beach house. I really want to. I really want to make an offer on it. Can we liquidate some of my securities?" And he had about a ten million dollar portfolio, and the advisor was like. Well, why don't we leverage that? You know, you can borrow against those securities. You could make a cash offer today on yeah. that and then take out a mortgage later. And they did it. And he got his dream beach home. And it was just a phenomenal thing, a way to leverage and have smart management of that money. And that's so- Talk to us a little bit about this sort of transfer, the generational transfer of wealth, because we talk a lot mm-hmm. about sort of millennials writ large and, and, you know, wealthy millennials, it feels like do have a bit of a, a different approach, especially if it's inherited uh, wealth. Tell us about what you're seeing. Take us inside some of those conversations. Well, it uh, specifically around millennials? Or just this next generation that's sort of coming up, the okay. younger generation. Okay. I, you know, I think um, we do see um, some inherited. We see a lot of self-made wealth. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there's a different approach to that. Um, so I would say they're much more informed, um, you know, the, the, the upcomers, the newer generations, the ones that are getting the wealth now. So, you know, they can get online and do a lot of research, whereas yeah. before that wasn't happening. So they come in much more informed. They know about some of the strategies. They, they want to um, share their knowledge and kind of check out what they're being told. And they really look for the authenticity of that advisor and, and what their interests are. And they want them to get to know them yeah. personally and what's important to them so that they can make decisions better. And, and I do think if you are running um, you know, an advisory service that's dealing with family wealth offices, you've got to think about the different generations and have people there that can kind of you do. talk yeah. to all of them when you're managing a portfolio. You do. You do. And and we're seeing a lot of that in in advisory practices now where they're actually, you've got different generations that are having specialties that come into that business and able to
able to grow it much more efficiently. And to manage the conversation in the family, which can be very different. Correct. All right. Good stuff. Katie Swain, Director of High Net Worth Product Management at Pershing, joining us here at her show, BNY Mellon's Pershing Insight Conference here in Phoenix. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so we're catching up with uh, an old friend here in, uh, in Phoenix. We're on site, of course, at BNY Mellon's Pershing Insight Conference. Janet Johnston is with us. She is Portfolio Manager, Trim Tabs Asset Management, based back with us in yeah. New York City, but nice. here in the desert uh, this week, trying to make sense of it all. So, uh, Janet, talk to us about this market. I mean, we're trying to kind of grab the signal uh, out of the noise here. Help us out. What are you seeing? Well, it, you know, what we think is that in this environment, you want to own high-quality companies because we're going from risk on to risk off. There's, there's headline risk. There's geopolitical risk. The big elephant in the room is the trade war risk. On the other hand of the inqua- equation, are we in a Goldilocks economy? You know, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, inflation is low. The consumer is in really strong shape. We've got record low unemployment. They've got the best balance sheets in 40 years. Uh, wages are slowly rising. There's no sign of a recession. There's no sign of an earnings recession. And we see companies flush with cash with really strong organic growth. In that environment, usually stocks go up. Right. And a lot of them seem to be doing that. Right. Exactly. Does anything change, though, if we have a protracted U.S.-China trade war? Do we have to get a little bit nervous that there's some kind of global economic impact and then subsequently it is going to either slow consumer spending or slow the economy and so things start to come undone that even those well-bred brand names have some troubles? Well, we, we like to look at it like a vertical firing squad. And so the companies that don't have enough cash to withstand whatever may come their way will probably be the first to be shot. So we look at free cash flow. We look at balance sheets. How big of a cash moat does a company have? Since, uh, I would say, last September, we've been looking at each company. What's their supply chain risk? What percentage of the revenues are to China, are mm-hmm. those poten- revenues potentially at risk? What other moats does a company have? Are they well-positioned in terms of a technological edge, in terms of their brand, in terms of global recognition? And so we think we've just been building more and more moats into our portfolio. And so talk to us about the U.S. consumer, because, you know, we see these numbers come out from a Lulu, mm-hmm. an RH, you know, something like that, where... Clearly, they are seeing a real benefit from a pretty optimistic consumer who's willing to not just go out and shop, but shop for some premium brands. What do you make of that? Absolutely. Uh, Lululemon is executing on all fronts. I was not a believer that they would be able to enter the men's market, and it was up 26% year over year. But the other story that I, I don't know if your other guests have been talking about it or not is that their online sales in China were up 100%, yeah. and their sales in China were up, I mean, not in China, but Asia as a whole, were up 40%. We actually own in our domestic fund, which is TTAC, and our international fund, uh, TTAI, 
We actually own Lululemon in both of those because it's a Canadian company. But we have seen a trend of companies that are benefiting from a strong U.S. consumer, but also a strong Chinese consumer. Interesting. And that hasn't seemed, that hasn't really changed in this trade war environment. But if it goes on? If something's substantial, if it goes to another leg of severity between the relationship, then do you rethink that or no? Well, you know, it's interesting because, A, Lululemon is a Canadian company. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they're probably making in China what they're selling in China. Only, I think they said only, I can't remember, 12 to 16 percent made in China, but those products probably aren't coming to the U.S. They're staying there. And so I think the companies, um, you know, my guess is Nike, a similar situation, that they're able to match up their manufacturing to where they're selling it. And these are strong markets. But you're right. It's a Canadian company. I forget that. I forget that. Disney's another one, and we had an earlier guest talk about it. I mean, this stock, you know, Bob Iger, it's hard to... To find a CEO, I think, who has managed a brand, grown the brand, as well as he has. I think we're just very excited about what Disney is doing. Um, I mean, just think their new Star Wars Mm -hmm. exhibit in Disneyland. There are going to be generations of kids and adults and teenagers who are going to go, and then they're going to want to see all the Disney movies. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, they they have nine billion in free cash flow. Netflix has negative two and a half billion a year, and they just wrote off. I want to say three hundred million. So Netflix is not going to have access to Disney's catalog. Mm-hmm. They're going to be very formidable in the streaming. Right. They got an upgrade just today, and the stock shot up on that news because because of the the expectations of ramping up in terms of streaming. And they're already Mm. making the content, so they're not going to spend more money to make the content. Right. They just have to build the channel out. And they've already said it's costing them less than they thought it was going to cost. It's amazing. Uh, Two great stories. Thank you so much. Janet Johnson, Portfolio Manager for Trim Tabs Asset Management, based in New York, but here with us in Phoenix, BNY Mellon's Purging Insight Conference. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.